Anyway, I want to talk to you. You guys know what mission statements are, right? And I want to talk to you about mission statements this morning. Um, you know, God has a mission statement for his people. And I'm going to tell you what it is in a minute. But first, I want to talk about Jesus' last day as a free man. Okay, in Matthew 21, it starts. He goes to the temple. And he spends, I think, most of the day there. And he starts with a parable about the wicked tenants who stop taking care of this vineyard. And the master gets on to them and sends a messenger to talk to them. Remember that? And they beat him up. And then he sends another one. They kill him. And then in the Greek it says, the owner finally sends his son, thinking they'll listen. And they resist him and they eventually kill him. And the Pharisees are standing by listening. Now, here's the picture. Here's a temple. Jesus is talking to Pharisees. And there's a few hundred people listening in. So it's a big crowd. And the Pharisees quickly agree and say, this is what hap should happen to those, those wicked stewards. They should be cast out. And this vineyard should be given to someone else. And Jesus immediately says, the kingdom of God will likewise be taken from you and given to another nation. That's huge. Israel was the nation of God. No one came to God without becoming part of Israel. I'm not saying he didn't have a few people on the outside that somehow found him and loved him. But God's purpose and God's people, there was only one nation that God called his own. The rest he turned over in the book of Deuteronomy. But he called Israel. And Jesus just told the leaders, God's going to take it from you and give it to another nation. That was incredibly offensive. They were livid and they moved, made a move to arrest him. But they stopped and held back because Matthew says they withdrew because of the people. See, the people were astonished going, wow, nobody ever talked like this before. You guys with me? So Jesus takes advantage of this situation. It's his last day. He's pouring his heart out. Okay? Just imagine him. He's active. He's not hanging back. I mean, his adrenaline's probably up a little bit. He's a man, and he's active, and this day is passionate for him. So he quickly tells another parable, this time about a wedding feast. A king's son is about to be married. He's throwing a big wedding feast. It's a big, big, big deal. And this king sends out the word to all the special people, because you know what? The special people are the ones invited, right? Like only the ones who win this basketball game are going to go out to dinner. <laughs> Nobody else is going to get to come. These are special people, and they don't want to come. They make excuses. It's so offensive to this king to do this that he eventually kills them and burns their city. It's right there. And then the king says, let's invite anybody who will come. Now remember, this is a wedding feast for his son. No king would ever do this. No king would ever just open the doors and say, whoever. That's a picture of our king. But wait, there's more. After inviting all these people, the king's walking around. He's, he's surveying the room and he's going, there's still more room. I think heaven's going to be so big, we're going to say, wow, everyone could have fit. That was the Lord's grace and mercy. Everyone could have come. The only people who are going to end up in hell are the people who insist on it. 
Because that's how good God is. So this guy is walking in this room and he's looking and he says, go out and invite anyone that you can get. Compel them to come in. And it says they brought in both the good and the bad. And then the king's walking around later in the feast. He finds this one guy. Now this used to happen to us back in the 80s. <laughs> if we didn't wear a blue blazer and a tie in this room, <laughs> we'd get stood up and told to leave. We weren't properly dressed. That was the dress code back then. Girls, no pants, only gray skirts. That's how it was. So be thankful. It could be a lot worse. This king says, you're not dressed properly. And I have to think about the garments of salvation and the way the message of the gospel is whosoever will come, just come. But there's more responsibility to that than just saying the prayer and thinking, now I'm going to heaven. I said the words. God's a little bigger than that. He's not so easily manipulated. The garments of salvation are important. And then Jesus says about that, many are called, few are chosen, which is a lesson for another day. This parable angered the Pharisees even more, but the crowd marvels. So they regroup and they recruit the Herodians. Okay, so you got the Pharisees, now you got the Herodians, and they form this scheme to trap Jesus and ask him a question about taxes. If they can trick Jesus into answering this incorrectly, they can put him in his place, the crowds will start murmuring against him, then they can arrest him. Because remember, that's what they want to do. That's all they're thinking about this day. They've decided this is the day we're going to arrest him. So if Jesus says taxes are good, pay them, the crowd's going to grumble, right? Just like you would. When you get older, you'll get that one. If he says taxes are bad, they'll go to the Romans and have him arrested. It's a no-win scenario. He can't win. Either way, he gets arrested. Tell us what you think, verse 17. Is it lawful to pay taxes or not? Jesus asks for a coin and points to the image on the coin. This is important. He's talking to the Pharisees and the people of God, and they understand, and it's very important in their culture, they're very aware daily that they're created in God's image, and they, they believe that they're the only ones fully created in God's image. And Jesus points to the coin and says, whose image is on this coin? If you're going to be part of this system, the image stamped upon it has the, the right to make rules and you have to yield to them. If you want to sit home and grow your crops and eat them and mind your own business, you're out of the system. But if you're going to handle money and go in and buy and sell and do trade, you got to pay taxes and contribute. That's what that image meant. And, and then he said, render unto God what is God's. He was making mention of the stamp of the creator. Everyone is created, Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man our own image, Genesis 1.27 says. And he created them both, male and female, in the image of God. Women, the guys don't have anything on you. Somebody say, woohoo. Okay, I'll get you guys to do better than that before it's over. <laughs> it was brilliant. He took the spotlight off the government, off the temple, and put it on God where it belonged. 
So they withdraw, they regroup. It's not over, it's still the same day. They get the Sadducees now. And the Sadducees come up with another scenario. They try to trick him, saying, well, what if a woman has like seven husbands because each one dies, she marries another? You know the story. And he rebukes them for saying that. Now, it's funny, in Africa, men have seven wives, but they have them all at the same time. It's really... Do they do that in Uganda? Yes, they do. I don't know why. One is all I can keep up with. <laughs> wow. Anyway, it says after Jesus rebukes them for not understanding, it says the multitudes heard it and they were astonished at his teaching. He must have had a teaching. You know, John says everything he didn't say hasn't been written down. But it was, it was powerful. And in brief, he was telling them, you guys don't know anything. So the Pharisees are watching. They're listening as the Sadducees also fail. The Herodians, they jump back in one more time, this time with a lawyer. Okay? But the lawyer wasn't like a barrister in the court. The lawyer was an expert in the word of God. They knew everything. They were also called scribes. And they had many passages memorized. And if you had a question about the law of God books of Moses, any of that stuff, they were the ones that would settle it. I'm thinking Jesus has had enough by now, but he's still very patient. He's leading up. He knows something is coming. And they ask him. Does anybody remember what they ask him? Shout it out. What's the greatest commandment? Now, they're tricking him again. Because if he highlights one commandment over the others, or one law above the others, they're going to rebuke him for that. But if he brushes them off and just gives like the answer like a politician would where he doesn't really answer the question, then they're going to get up and they're going to say some kind of platitudes quoted from one of their commentaries and they're going to make him look stupid. I mean, it's another thing where you can't win. Or can you? I think at that point Jesus has had enough and he takes his place in front of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, remember... The Rodians are there, and the multitudes are there. And he makes what I believe is the most all-encompassing statement of his entire ministry. It's the motto for the church. Now imagine if you can. He stands there. He gets resolute. This is the big thing. And, and Gabriel, this is the time to put this, this verse up if we can. Jesus clears his throat and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In that scenario, Mark 12, he adds, and with all your strength. And Jesus quickly adds, this is the first and the great commandment. This is our mission statement. This is huge. Throughout history, kings have demanded loyalty, Obedience, servanthood, but love has never been a requirement. Yield to the king, be loyal to the king, obey the king, fight for the king, die for the king, but never love the king. What does this say about our king? It says that whether we love him or not, for some reason, is important to him. That's powerful. I hope I'm not going too fast for you guys. 
Jesus exclaims, this is not just the first commandment. It's the great commandment. No one had ever done that. No one had ever put one above all the rest like that. Jesus says, and also love your neighbor as yourself, but, but that's not the first. It's, it's not even a close second. But if you love God, you will love your neighbor. But if you just love your neighbor, it's not enough. You'll think you're doing something, but you're really not. Just remember that. There's some people that don't want to focus on connecting with God. It's too hard and the, and the cost is high. You get close to the Lord and sometimes he says things you don't want to hear. Like, knock it off. Change that. I wonder if sometimes we make too little of this great commandment. But it's the greatest. And if it's the greatest, then that means applying that commandment above all the others will bring the greatest results. Did you hear that? If that's the greatest commandment, then applying it with the greatest effort will produce the greatest results possible from any effort. It's the key to everything. And it's not only the greatest commandment now, it's going to be the greatest commandment forever in all eternity. We're going to keep seeing new aspects of God and go, wow, I love him so much. And it's always going to be important to him that we love him and are captivated by his exceeding greatness. Amen? I used to wonder, why doesn't God just come down one time? Just come out of the sky and show everybody at once, I'm here and I'm real. You ever wonder that? Like, he's going to do that in the end. It says everyone's going to see him. But why doesn't he just do it? Everybody will get saved if you just do that, Lord, one time. But you know what? <laughs> Jesus fed 3,000 people all at once. They all saw it. And then 5,000. And then it's, they all believed it was a miracle. They knew where the food come from because they said, wow, this is like Moses and the manna. 3,500 years ago, God appeared to 3 million people. Over a million men, it was at least 3 million people at the foot of Mount Sinai. All at once in a, in a stage that cannot be faked. There was no special effects. The appearance was so incredible it scared everybody. They knew that Moses had spent time talking with God, so they said, you go find out what the rules are. Just find out what we need to do. This is too scary. So Moses comes back with Ten Commandments written by the figure of God, right? How God's people are to live. And the whole story is retold in Deuteronomy 6 and Moses sums up everything to the multitudes he's got these ten commandments but he gets up and he's, he clears his voice and he's got like I don't know how he did it like three million people he's talking to somehow they did it he clears his throat he gets resolute and you know what he says now remember this is God's appearing God shows them as much of him as they can stand it's God coming out of the sky and proving that he exists. They've just been delivered from Egypt. But all these plagues, who knows? Because half the plagues, the magicians in Egypt also did them. Remember that? 
So there's still probably some doubt. So God in his grace and mercy, he comes down in a way that's unmistakable. And then he says, I'm going to reveal something to you that none of you know. No one else knows this. I'm going to tell you a side of me that's going to blow you away forever if you can just hear it. And you know what he says? 3,500 years ago? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your might. Isn't that powerful? When God comes for the first time to really fully reveal him, it's like a politician who's got his 10-point plan. He calls the press and he says, I'm going to announce my candidacy. This is what I'm about. And what I'm going to tell you, I can never get out of this because my constituency will never forget it. The ones who hate me will never forget it. The press will never forget it. I've really thought this out. This is what I'm about. Here it is. And that's what God's saying. Isn't that powerful? And then quickly Moses adds, now he says, teach this to your children and mind your household often. Wear this as a reminder on your wrist. We thought we invented these nifty little things, right? They've been around for a long time. Wrap it on a headband around your head. We put these ball caps on with our favorite team on them. We didn't invent that. That's been around a long time. Write it down on a piece of paper and nail it to your doorpost so that you think about it every time you go in and come out. What is it that's so important? Love God with everything. God wants you to love him. Wow. He's saying, I am the God who loves and I want to be loved. You don't know who I am, but here's a tiny part of me. And this is important to me. The good news of the gospel is way better than we could have imagined, right? I mean, think about it. If I had a million years, I couldn't come up with the fact that the one who hung the moon and the sun and the stars loves me, and he really, really, really wants me to return that love. It's so easy to forget about it. Moses goes on and he prophesies, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It's like the Lord is saying, I promise you this is going to happen. That's how important it is to me. He says, I, the Lord your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Why does God want our love? Partly because it's, it moves his heart the way any father would want their child to love them, but he also knows it's so good for us when we love him. That's why he wants our worship. Listen, he's got angels that when they're described, honestly, Mike, they sound like monsters. They're just so huge and so powerful that worship him. He doesn't, I mean, what is our worship? He wants us to worship not because he needs that. It's because it's the best place for us to be in life. is to be captivated by his glory. That's the only safe place for us. 
and good place for us. So that's why he tells us, worship. Worship only me. And God says, I will not leave this to chance. I will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. I will indwell you to make sure you love me and you continue to follow me. Isn't that powerful? I know who I am without the Holy Spirit in me. I will get bored. I will turn away in a heartbeat and I'll ruin my life. Even if I have a book that says, remember not to be this guy, not to be, without the Holy Spirit, I know I will fall away. I know I would never turn to the Lord. I wouldn't stay with him. I wouldn't love his word. All of those things are a gift. It's, it's like he says, I want you to love me now. I'm going to make sure that you do. I'm so grateful. I don't know how the Lord picks and chooses. I'm just glad that he's chosen me. Don't get lost in the story of your own life and look too much inside. Just keep looking at him. It's not about you. It never will be about you. It's about him. But the good news is it's no longer I that live, but Christ. I've been crucified. You've been crucified with Christ, right? In John 15, 9, Jesus said, I will love you. Are you ready for this? I will love you as the Father loves me. Wow. Think about the love the Father has for the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's the way I'm going to love you. Realize this is Jesus's, back to Matthew 22, this is Jesus's last public message. He's pouring his heart out. He's going to return to the temple that night bound as a prisoner. He knows that. He's been talking about it for weeks. And he's revealing this last new thing about God that no one knew. Except that God told them 3,000 years ago, but he's saying for the first time, this one is the first and this one is the great commandment. God gave that commandment to Moses, but he never told him how important it was as far as we know. God has everything in this world that he wants. Everything except for that. He can't take that. He can't. He gave it to us and it's our free will of whether or not we'll love him. Later that same day, Jesus is in the upper room and he's bearing his heart to his disciples. And in an act of what I think was real humility, he washes their feet. And you can see it as he's showing them a lesson and he's that mentor and that tough coach going, I'm going to show them. But I think it was also that he just loved them and he wanted to humble himself. This is our God. He wanted to humble himself and just be kind to them. And then he prays right in front of them. He bears his heart. Seven, John 17, 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am and see the glory you gave me because you loved me before you formed the earth. When you really love someone, you want them to see you. You want them to see what you're doing. That's what Facebook is all about. We want everyone to see what we're going through. And have you ever had some cool accomplishment and the, you just thought, man, I, w I wish so-and-so was here to see this? 
That's Jesus talking about you. Father, I want them to be with me in that place where I am glorified by you and it's all good. I want them to be there and see that. This is Jesus' dying prayer. First of all, it's the Son of God. We know that prayer is going to get answered. Second of all, it's, it's his last request. But wait, it gets better. Two verses later, he says, I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. And here's why. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, he's saying God, Father, I want them to love me the way you love me. That's what he's praying the Holy Spirit will do in you. Now, is it possible for me to love God, to love Jesus the way the Father does? Yes and no, <laughs> right? But it is because the Holy Spirit's in me, which means I can love him with the same love, but I have to yield to that. I don't know about you guys, this last day, though, of of just here in Jesus' heart. I've been stuck on this for months. He, he loves us. And he created us for his image. And he wasn't on the cross going, you guys, can you believe this? Can you believe where I am? I saw this coming. I told you they were finally going to kill me. I've had about enough. Can you see the Lord being that way? I can't. He wasn't in the upper room telling John, get your head off my shoulder. You're going to run away later. Peter, don't even talk to me about your commitment because I know you. I know what you're going to do. I know what you're capable of. I see in your heart. You say you love me. Your heart's divided. No, the Lord was never like that. So I wonder sometimes, I'm going to fuss at you for one second and then it's going to be, get good. I wonder sometimes why we feel like we can be that way with other people when we're created for his image, right? Are you with me, anybody? But here's Jesus on the cross, okay? This is the real picture. I know you. I know everything about you. I chose you before the world was made. I chose you before I created you. And I see you now, and I choose you again. It's right for me to be here. No one else could have done this. You could have never bore the punishment. So I'm happy to be here. I see a happy God. It's right for me to be here dying for you. I love you. I created you for my image. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever settle for less. So Lord, we just, uh, we feel like we're just getting started with you. We love you so much because you loved us first. Lord, I ask you for everyone in this room that you would reveal your purpose in their life and show them 
the places in their life where it's easiest to meet with you and teach them how to get into those places often. We love you, Lord.